0: Well, good afternoon everyone, and uh, thank you, Joan, for reading to us there. Um, Thank you for your birthday uh, wishes this week as well. Uh, I turned 21 again this week. Um, You'll be delighted to know that my main birthday present this week was a saxophone. Um, I've never played a musical instrument in my life, but at the age of 48, I should warn you now, that I'm learning to play the saxophone. How about that? So, uh, I'll keep you posted. Oh, a nice round of applause. Excellent. Very good. I haven't started to play it yet. <laughs> you wouldn't say that if you could even be practising at home. Um, as Luke said, today we're starting a new series in the book of 1 John. It's towards the end of the Bible. Do keep your finger in the page. Um, we're going to be referring to it. There are some notes on the uh, service uh, handout, worship program, whatever we call it these days. The major theme in this letter is confidence. We we British people possibly don't do confidence very well. Um, We certainly don't like arrogance. When someone is overconfident, I think we Brits all secretly hope that the person falls flat on their face so that they'll kind of come down to our level. But I think on the other hand, we don't have a lot of patience if someone has no confidence or very little confidence. Um, I don't know if this illustration will work, but in the long running soap, UK soap, Coronation Street. When I was growing up, there was a character in Coronation Street called Mavis Riley. Does, does anyone, is anyone familiar with Mavis Riley? Yeah, you older ones will be. She worked as an assistant in the local corner shop with her super confident boss, Rita. And Rita was always sure of herself, and she wasn't shy in telling Mavis what she should be doing. And poor Mavis had a catchphrase. And you know what it is, don't you? I'll do an impression of her. Mavis Riley on Coronation Street, she'd turn to Rita and she would say, Rita, but I don't really know. And that was Mavis Riley. I don't really know. And Rita would give her a clip around the ear and tell her to get on with it. That's the question that this letter's trying to answer, though. How can I really? No. How can I really know what I really know? John tells us his reason for writing near the end of this letter in chapter 5 and verse 13 and our series title comes from this verse and he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. Wow. So that you may know that you have eternal life. This letter is therefore actually about the most important kind of confidence. How can I know that I know God? How can I know that I know the real Jesus? How can I be sure that I possess eternal life? You can't ask more important questions than that, can you? It seems to me that John is writing to Christian versions of Mavis Riley who are not sure, they don't really know. These people that John is writing to are having a massive crisis of confidence and there's a reason for their doubts in this case. One of the things I've noticed and and maybe learned in business over the years Is that when people leave an organization, you have to be very careful to manage the emotions of the people who stay behind. Do you get that? We're a team. Everything that we do is according to a certain vision. We're going somewhere and then someone leaves. And you have to manage the emotions of the people who are still in the team when someone leaves, it can make the whole team think that the person who's left doesn't believe in what we've been doing anymore. They've found something better. They've moved on because what we were doing wasn't good enough for them. One John is written to the Christian believers who stayed behind. We'll see as we go through this letter that there were people who had left. They'd left this community. Here's a community of people who believe in Jesus, they love one another, and influential people within that community have said, now we're leaving. And John's writing here to the people left behind who were shattered and shocked and bewildered, and their confidence is seeping away The ones that have gone are perhaps claiming to have grown up and matured. They're claiming that they have a deeper grasp of spiritual things. They're moving on to bigger and better ideas. And the Christians who are still here in this community now feel uncertain, unsure. They're secretly a little bit worried whether they've got things wrong after all. I wonder whether these Christians here are almost being made to feel a little bit inferior and a little bit simplistic in their approach. Those who have left seem so much more sophisticated. They seem so much more broad-minded. They seem more tolerant. And the ones left behind are being made to feel narrow and simplistic and judgmental and perhaps a little bit too obsessed with Jesus. Jesus. This John writes this letter, and it's actually all about confidence in Jesus. It is written to Christians who do love Jesus, but are who having a, they're having a crisis. So, in in the words of uh, Eminem, I'm, I'm not going to do a rap, but our title for today as we just look at the introduction, is will the real Jesus please stand up? If you don't get the m reference, ask someone else afterwards. Um, I want to, we're gonna try and unpack the first four verses this afternoon, which is really the prologue, the introduction to this letter that John writes. And I just wanna pause at the beginning and talk about the fact that this is a crazy introduction. I'm regretting putting the word crazy there because we're talking about the Bible here and as I was sat in the congregation for I thought, man alive I'm gonna preach the Bible, I've called the introduction crazy. I, I think by the time we get to the end of this you'll know what I mean. I don't mean it isn't true, I don't want to undermine the Bible but there is something slightly crazy about this introduction. These four verses here are actually one sentence in the original that this was written in Greek. And we might even say that it's clumsy. And by the way, what a great encouragement to me as a preacher when my introductions are clumsy. There's a clumsy introduction right here in the Bible. And so I'm, I'm encouraged by that. If John ever went to night school to do a class on how to write introductions, he ignores all of it in this introduction. The structure here is disjointed. It's repetitive. But hold on a second. I I don't want you to think, I I, I don't want that to make us think that John is in any way confused. I, I have to tell you, I I have so enjoyed reflecting on this section this week. I I almost think John here sounds giddy. I, I think he sounds excited. After 40 or 50 years of bathing in the sunlight of knowing Jesus and faced with this group of demoralized Christian believers. He dives into such big ideas and there's a joy and an energy and a vitality about his writing. By the end of verse 4, that's like sentence number one for John, his pen is beginning to melt, he's beginning to catch fire and I wanted to cheer. That's just after sentence number one. There's five chapters here. But there is some comedy value here. This is why I call it slightly crazy. The, the main issue here is that John chooses to write like Yoda speaks in Star Wars. Do you, do you know, if you know Yoda in Star Wars, Yoda is the little green wise, like 3,000 year old Jedi. I don't know what he is. Yoda. There's only one of him. Yoda emphasizes things by often putting the object of the sentence at the beginning and then keeping you waiting for the subject. So if you met Yoda later, Yoda might say very simply, to church I went. That's how Yoda speaks all the time. John does exactly that here and the Yoda sense of what John is saying in this section is That which was from the beginning, we proclaim. He's speaking like, he's writing like Yoda speaks. That which was from the beginning, we proclaim. I shouldn't move away from the mic. We proclaim. But there are two problems for us with that. First of all, the verb to proclaim that fits with the beginning of verse 1 doesn't actually appear until verse 3. It's so far away from the beginning of the sentence in English that even if Yoda said it, it wouldn't make any sense because you'd have forgotten what he meant. (laughs) It's so far away, the completion of the sentence. It's so bad in English that the NIV actually inserts words that are not there in the original. Wow. I think that's okay because they do provide us with a good sense of what's going on but the words at the end of verse 1 that say this we proclaim they're not there in the original the reason they're there is because if you waited till verse 3 to get that the sentence wouldn't make sense in English you'd have gone to sleep before Yoda finished so the second issue is that verse 2 should be in brackets In verse 1, this this is why I said keep your finger on the page. In verse 1, John gives no less than five additional facts about this thing that was from the beginning. Count them with me. He says, that which was from the beginning, we heard it, we saw it, our eyes looked at it, we touched it. And then he says, this thing concerned The word of life. Five things. But when he says the word of life, that phrase makes him then want to explain what the word of life is before he finishes the sentence he started. So rather than do the Yoda thing, he goes on a little detour in verse 2, and then he resumes his train of thought in verse 3 by saying, that thing that I told you about in verse 1 that we had seen and heard, that's what we proclaim to you. It, what, what a mess. That, that, that is a mess of a sentence. Why do I tell you all that? I'm not just interested in grammar. I'll, I'll tell you why I tell you all that. This is important because I think John writes like someone who can't talk quickly enough because he's so excited. He wants to say so many things all at the same time That are all equally important, but the problem with words is they have to go one after the other, don't they? And he doesn't know what order to put them in. He's kind of diverting off here. It's like the words come tumbling out. You can't say ten equal things all at once. What a pain. It's a limitation of language. So what comes out from John's pen is this tumbling, disjointed, and yet... Utterly lofty sentence. These must be amongst the most sublime words you could read. So now you know that this prologue is amazing. (laughs) Let me try and break it down for us with three very simple headings. And I'll try and give you three simple applications My first heading here, if we think about, oh, let's go back one, just one. There you go. The real Jesus was encountered by eyewitnesses. Will the real Jesus please stand up? The, the great point that John makes here, first of all, is that the real Christ, when he came into the world, was experienced by eyewitnesses who saw him. Did you see this past week the item on the BBC website about a famous goalkeeper who played for Liverpool in the 1960s? He was a Scottish man, although I think he's lost his Scottish accent. Ewan will be disappointed about that. But he must have lived in England for a long time. At least he didn't sound like a scouser. He was a Scottish man called Tommy Lawrence. Let me show you the clip. A BBC reporter is out on the streets asking random people a question about a certain game and he gets more than he bargained for. Let's uh, see if we can see the little clip. Can you guys move it on for us? What are the chances of this? I'm just wondering whether you remember the Derby match in 1967 when Goodison F.A. got the fifth round and it was shown on a big screen ambulance. That's right. you up late it? Did you? I uh, was walking for a little bit. Well, that's a stroke of not moving tonight. Can you remind me of your name? Know, Copyright Nice to meet you. What, what do you remember about him? it? was reggae, yeah. Alan the Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Send me a short clip. What a, what a sweet guy. Look it up on the BBC website. They do an interview at his home after this one. Um, let's move, we'll move back on one. Sorry, move forward, well, there you go. Tommy is, th- this, this reporter goes out into town and this guy's doing his shopping in Liverpool. Asking random people, do you remember this game in 50, 50 years ago? Liverpool played Everton, Merseyside Derby. And this guy goes, oh, I don't I do, I do remember that, I played in it. <laughs> the guy's like, "What? what are the chances of that? He was a Liverpool goalkeeper in that very game. Tommy Lawrence. I was there. I think John is saying something very similar here, isn't he? John is in his, probably in his mid-80s when he writes this. It could be 50 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as an old man, John is saying to these demoralized Christians, his first defense, if you like, to them is to say, like Tommy Lawrence, I played in it, I was there. The ones who have left with all their fancy opinions about Jesus, and John says, I was there, I played in it. In verse one, we counted them John says that which was from the beginning, we have heard it, we have seen it. Then bizarrely he adds, our eyes let me which we have looked at. What does he it seems which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked at. There's another word used there that we get the English word theatre from. It is as if John is saying, we didn't just hear it. We didn't just see a glimpse of it. We had front row seats. And the performance wasn't just an afternoon matinee or an evening for an hour with ice cream in the interval. We sat and gazed, transfixed at this for a long time. We drank it all in. We absorbed every scene, every word. We watched every unfolding act in this drama. We had front row seats. I love the fact, too, that John says that this was something we touched. Right at the end of Luke's gospel, John Was with the other disciples in a locked room, and they were frightened. And this mighty Jesus appears in the room and says to them, peace be with you. And it says in Luke that they were frightened and startled. They thought it was a ghost. John was there at the crucifixion, and Jesus appears in the room. What does Jesus say to them? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like you see I have. This coming isn't an accident. John says we saw him, we heard him, we gazed on him, we touched him we surely can't miss john's emphasis here he repeats it three times in one sentence it's there in verse one it's there in the brackets in verse two the life appeared oh did i tell you we've seen it and heard it and then he gets to verse three we proclaim to you what what we've seen and heard three times he drives the nail in we saw it we were there i played in it Let me just apply this. What this means very simply is that there is a real Jesus. In other words, we can't just make up our own individual version of Jesus. I mean, you could play in the back garden and pretend you played for Liverpool. You could imagine scoring the winning goal in the FA Cup final. But you could never say, I was there, could you? We live in days when you and I will hear things like, all spiritual paths ultimately lead to the same God. No, they don't. We live in days where you might hear this. What you need to do in life is follow your own path. Find your own path and follow it. Or maybe you recognize this sentiment. It's arrogant to claim that there is only one way or that your way is better than someone else's way. Friends, this is known as relativism. Everything is relative. There is no objective truth. Truth is basically whatever you want it to be for you. But John says, he, John demolishes that, doesn't he? He says, I, I was there. It's not just philosophical though, I, I, don't, I, I just wanted to say a word about the fact that some of that philosophical relativism is heightened because of technology. I, I, I could go down this. Don't mishear me, me here, technology is good. I'm not a Luddite, I, I don't understand a lot of it, but I don't think I'm a Luddite. But we have a problem in our lives with the noise that can undermine our confidence in Christ. We ask ourselves how do I really know? Can I really believe? But if we use social media to validate what is true or not, our confidence will be on the floor too, won't it? Social media is making everything like a kind of group discussion there's a good side to that, obviously, but often we are weighing ideas based on how many people agree with them. It, is, it, is, it seems to me as if Google has become the oracle of majority wisdom, but Google is not God. Some of you, well, I think all of us at one time or another, will be too prone. To going online to verify truth claims. Instead of listening to what God has said, we want to know what everyone else thinks. John writes here with great affection, but he he also writes with great authority, doesn't he? Because he has met the real Jesus. He was there. And John, I think, demolishes for that reason the idea that we can simply define our own truth about Jesus. Christ is not whatever we think he is. Christ is not whatever we want him to be. There is an historic, objective, real Jesus, John, experienced meeting him. My second simple observation on these verses is that the real Jesus is the eternal God come in human flesh. There, you guys can move that along. There you go. The real Jesus is the eternal God come in human flesh. Will the real Jesus please stand up? The thing is, we don't really know for sure what the people who had left this community were saying about Jesus. I have to tell you, I've thought a lot this week, maybe too much, about various suggestions, various groups and sects, Gnostics, Agnostics, Arians, Nestorians, followers of Decetus, Corinthus, you don't want to know. But I'll tell you what they all have in common though, All of them are speculating about the identity of Jesus. It isn't that they denied the existence of Jesus. They basically just all had their own opinions on who they thought Jesus was. I think one of the most important questions you or I could ask, is who is Jesus? It seems that some of those who had left maybe thought that Jesus was a great human being, but they just could not accept that he was divine. Maybe there were others who hoped that Jesus was truly divine but they could not understand how, if he was divine, how he could truly become human. How, you know, how God would never get his hands dirty like that. How, how could the divine participate in humanity? I, I think when we speculate about Jesus, we do have tendencies. I don't think we have a category to compare Jesus to in order to understand him or grasp him. So, one extreme we think, uh, we, I think we go to, is that God is just like us and we bring Jesus down to our level. I think there are other people who go to the opposite extreme and think we must somehow be just like God and we elevate ourselves to his level. I think often our approach in life reflects this. Some people live as if all that matters is matter. All that exists is what you can see. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing ultimate beyond. Life is basically physical. And then there are other people who live as if matter doesn't matter. (laughs) They yearn for the transcendent. They want to experience something extraordinary. And then here comes John who seems to balance both these two great truths about Jesus which shatter our categories. He is the eternal God who became truly human. Jesus comes from another place to this place. Here is the ultimate, most transcendent reality meeting the gritty ordinariness of human life. This is why John starts with Like Yoda, the object. That which was from the beginning. One writer observes that before history heard the starting gun. I love that. On your marks. Before the starting gun of history went off, Jesus was there. John's beginning goes all the way back to eternity past. This is a statement about the pre-existence and the deity, the divine nature of Jesus. And yet John isn't just a mystical kind of guy who yearned for something more and kind of leaned that way. That may have been true, but the fact is that his experience of Christ was physical and practical, we saw and heard and looked at him and gazed on him and touched him. The eternal God has come to us clothed in human flesh like ours. and We experienced him. Sometimes when you see a play or, or a show, we were a bit worried this might have happened on our candlelight carol service uh, Christmas Eve, it's it's dark on the stage and there's dry ice, bit of fog and then someone emerges from the back of the stage and they suddenly, they kind of gradually emerge and come into view. I think what John is describing here is Jesus emerging into view from the distant shores of eternity and striding purposefully into the pages of their real, gritty, human history. Jesus elsewhere in the Bible is described as the Ancient of Days. With eyes of blazing fire, he is old and yet he's alive and full of life. I came across one preacher who very humorously observed Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father but no heavenly mother. But who had an earthly mother and no earthly father. He was the only man who was older than his mum and yet was as old as his dad. Jesus is fully God and thus eternal. John elaborates on this in verse 2, the little bit in brackets, the life appeared, emerging from the shores of eternity, the life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. It not just that Jesus strides forward from eternity. The truth is that his loving Father sent him. I think John is expressing something of his wonder at being the recipient of such a divine gift. God the Father sent his only son, his eternal son. As a dad who has some sons who are now adults and one that's not far behind, I've sometimes given my older sons some gifts to try and help them be men, you know. Rob's been bravely and courageously putting shelves up this week and he needs a box of tools and drills and And I give them things to help them along in life, you know. It's what good dads do, isn't it? You you give them a toolbox. But this great and ultimate father has not given us a toolbox or even a set of instructions. He hasn't given us a technique or a method. What he has given us is his eternal son. He has effectively given to his life itself. The real Jesus came to John not primarily as an example or a puzzle for him to work out. Some kind of secret. Jesus is the ultimate secret, plainly made known. This Jesus came to John from eternity to be his very life. This real Jesus comes clothed in power for the weak, in wisdom for the foolish, in mercy for the failing, in kindness for the needy. He comes in compassion for the broken. He comes clothed in light for those who are in the dark. He comes clothed in truth for those who have fallen for lies. He comes clothed in sympathy and understanding. He comes to John and he comes to us in all his glorious wealth and riches to be ours. What God has given to us is nothing more and nothing less than his Son. There is some debate about the phrase at the end of verse 1, the word of life. Is John talking about the message he proclaimed, the the word of life? Or is he talking about Jesus as the living word? I've, I've read pages on that this week. Do you know what? I don't know if it even matters. Why? Because the point is that the message is the person. Paul says elsewhere, we preach Christ. He's the content. I I suppose when I'm preaching, I am holding out the word of life, but what I'm really doing is holding out before your gaze the person of Christ and inviting you to see him and embrace Him, and receive Him. I can't offer you a cure for cancer, or a winning lottery ticket, but what I can offer you is 10,000 million times better. I can hold out to you the word of life, Christ Himself. What John proclaims here is not a theory, it's not an idea, it's a living person who comes to us with an inexhaustible supply of every good thing that we need. If we get the identity of Jesus wrong, we will never understand salvation. We are, our grasp of what God has done and is doing for us will never come into focus until we see him as he really is. The ultimate invading the ordinary. If Christ is not ultimate he can't really save anyone but if he's not also an ordinary human how could he connect with us represent us how could he save us from our sins by dying on a cross for us and rising again John was there he saw this mighty Christ gasp for breath and die Jesus combines the nature of God with human nature in his one person so that he can bridge the gulf that exists between us and a holy God. In a sense, he holds God's hand and he can hold our hand because his his very identity as the God-man transcends and bridges that gulf. Hey, let, Let me just apply this. I think John would say to us we are called to trust the real Christ not speculate about him and I, I, I want to say to you don't start with yourself and try to work Jesus out start with Christ and let him work you out <laughs> you get that? Don't sit in judgment over him. Let, him. let him be the one who sits in judgment over you. you. You know what I mean. Later on in this letter, John says that when we don't believe in Jesus, we are basically calling the Father who sent him a liar. In chapter 5, we'll come into this over the next few weeks. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. When we speculate about Jesus, we're effectively saying to the Father who sent him from eternity into our lives, we're saying, I don't believe you. We're calling God himself a liar. We're called to trust in Jesus, not speculate about him. Very quickly and lastly, and you guys move it on last slide the real Jesus is the true source of life and joy I think that verse we read from 1 John 5 is a neat segue there whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of God does not have life the real Jesus is the true source of life and joy do you remember the video we watched about Tommy Lawrence do you know what the sweetest thing about that video clip was I don't know whether you felt this when you watched it. It was the twinkle in his eye. Even as an old man doing his shopping in Liverpool, the remembrance of playing in a game from 50 years ago brought a smile to his face. And here's John, an old man in his 80s, John has seen his own brother James and most of his closest friends actually put to death for their faith in Christ and yet under John's life it seems like there's a subterranean river of joy flowing. I want you to notice that John is not only saying I was there, I played in it, I was there. Look at verse 3 again. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, John here is not just nostalgically dreaming about a past experience. It is as fresh for him Today, as it had been then, what John is saying to us is that he knows God. He is in a living relationship with the ultimate Father and his eternal Son who came in the flesh. The physical Christ that he had known earlier in his life had long gone back to the glory from which he would come. But as an old man, John is still walking with that same Christ. He can't see him now and touch him now with his physical senses. But by God's spirit, he walks and relates to this God. John here talks about eternal life. Appearing. Eternal life that was with the Father and has appeared to us. Eternal life is not about quantity. It's really about quality. One writer says this, it's not just that you will live eternally when you die. But right now you have eternal life. If you are a Christian, God's life dwells in you. Here, is Jesus, here in Jesus Christ is the salvation, is, is, sorry, my eyes, is the solution to the problem of how sinful people can ever know God and be rightly related to Him. The yawning chasm between God's holiness and my sinfulness is bridged by the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. The question is, do you know God and his son Jesus like John describes here? I love that John writes to them simply so that they will experience what he's experienced. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So how can you know? I think in these verses there's a flow to what God has done and is doing. It's like the foundation of a strong house being laid. It starts with the eternal existence of Jesus with his Father. Then the Father sends him into human history, human flesh to save Eyewitnesses who saw him and knew him and experienced him then proclaim him. And those who believe their testimony become one with them and one with God and with his Son. The point of all this is that everything God has ever done is really aiming at our knowing him. God is not playing hard to get. He is reaching out to you, to me, offering himself to us in the person of his eternal son. Which means that our faith in Jesus reaches into objective, historic reality and yet touches our subjective experience. In our ordinariness, we can know the one who is ultimate. You and I can know that there is a Father who loves us and who has sent his Son to be all that we need. You can know that you are known and accepted as you embrace the Lord Jesus by faith. I just wanna close with one simple application here, and it's this, it is a challenge. The truth is that we cannot really know God outside of His Son, Jesus. The verses we read from the end of chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, John is actually saying that those who don't know this eternal life haven't actually even begun to live yet. This eternal life is the definition of life. To know God through Christ, his Son. Is your confidence compromised? I really pray as we go through this book, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life through faith in Christ.